The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. Welcome back, lawyers, lawyer lovers, and uh, the lawyer curious. For those of you who don't know me, I'm your host, Kevin Bolter. And we start series two of The Hearing with a barrister whose name might not be familiar, but was a collection of clients and notable cases that would leave many of us trembling. Jonathan Goldberg QC recounts his first foray into life at the bar and, as you will hear, isn't one to shy away from a controversial comment or client. Having become tired of life in chambers, he set up on his own from his home in North London, where he welcomed us with a nice cup of Yorkshire tea. Jonathan uses his adept advocacy skills to represent clients across a broad range of matters in his own inimitable style, including the odd naughty word, so consider yourself warned. With strong feelings about the state of the criminal justice system, we discuss his views on miscarriages of justice and how he came to be thanked by one of the notorious Cray brothers despite losing at trial. With enough anecdotes to produce his own podcast series, we are fortunate to be in the company of a gentleman, wit and raconteur, who I am sure will leave you wanting for more. The Hearing Jonathan, thank you very much for welcoming us to your home and I believe your office as well. Yes, it's now my home office since I became uh, North Square Chambers, of which I'm proprietor, sole barrister and general practitioner. Well, we're going to come on to why that came about and when that came about. But first of all, talk a little bit through um, what inspired you to a life at the bar? Well, I must say when I finished Cambridge and uh, obviously I was no more than about 21, 22 and I didn't know what the hell to do for a career. And I tried everything. I got interviews as a banker and I got interviews as an accountant mm. and uh, just about everything going. And I, I, I was actually offered, you know, training positions mm. by different things and indeed as a solicitor too. But then my late mother, who was a very shrewd woman, and she said, you know, you'd be a good barrister. You love talking and you love <laughs> public speaking and you're very argumentative and you drive me mad in that way. Uh, now, in those days, starting at the bar was very difficult, and uh, people did not make, make a living normally for the first few years at least. Uh, but I was lucky. The year I finished pupillage, literally, they brought in the first great legal aid uh, mm. act, and I can say that I've always made a living of sorts at the bar, and you know, more latterly, obviously, a good living. Mm. So I was very lucky, but it's gone completely around the other way again, as you know. Yeah. And the cuts to publicly funded uh, work are so savage now mm. that you know I, I could never advise a young person to follow the career I had, uh, which is very sad, really, because I've had such fun and it's you mm. know practicing in the criminal courts before juries and, and at the Old Bailey and so forth. It's mm. been such a great privilege, but it's all changed now, and the the whole atmosphere in the robing rooms uh, is now very miserable. Really, I am. Um, I, I know a lot of criminal barristers, in particular, are looking at diversification just to keep the money coming in and and so on a regular basis. Yes, they'll be uh, driving Ubers soon. <laughs> well, um, I was thinking more diversification within the the practice areas, but uh, you might well be right. Uh, in in terms of that, you, you're now doing more and more civil work, I, I, I believe, as well. Well, I've always I was lucky enough to have a very good civil pupilage with a. Um, practitioner in Manchester, on the, I'm from Manchester, on right. the Northern Circuit, whose name was George Spafford. He never made it to Silk, but he was a super mm. guy. And he had a very wide paperwork practice. Mm. So he made me work hard on his papers, 
Uh, and I'm very grateful to him because although I never wanted to practice in that area, but I, I've never been scared if a set of civil papers crosses my desk. And my motto these days if, is that if I can get a good junior in whatever particular field people may be silly enough to be willing to pay me to appear, um, I, I, I'll do it. If I can get yep. a junior who's expert in the field to point me in the right direction, then hopefully I've got the advocacy skills and, and it can make a wonderful team to do it that way. Hmm. And, and the, the skills of a, a barrister um, have perhaps evolved over the past, I don't know, 50 years or more. Um, and you know, advocacy is obviously a key one, but the speed of preparation, the, the work that goes into that, and even the relationship with solicitors, how has that changed over, over your career? Well, again, it's changed enormously. And I have to say, I, I, I'm, you know, nobody likes getting older, but I'm very happy that I'm in the last chapter of my career, yeah. obviously, rather than in the first. <laughs> because I see what it's like nowadays, and, and the electronic revolution and the pressure on time and resources and costs and everything's treasury driven and all the rest of it. So I see that being a judge is now a fairly miserable existence. Mm. Where, where when I was a younger man, it used to be, you know, a wonderful, wonderful job. They were on the golf course two, yeah. three afternoons a week. All that's gone. They're worked to a frazzle. They're not even given time properly to write their judgments. Mm. And the quality has declined as a result, inevitably, although they, they try so hard. Um, similarly, the pressures on the bar and indeed on solicitors in publicly funded work anyway are so enormous, they're expected to be so much more productive and be writing skeleton arguments and be up all night organizing bundles and nobody has even a kind word mm. uh, when they do it. You know, there's criticism after criticism that comes from the bench nowadays. Um, but that's because everybody is under such tremendous pressure in, mm. in this groaning, creaking system. I remember the late great Lord Chief Justice Lord Lane, Geoffrey Lane, mm. who was a great mentor of mine. I was very lucky to know him uh, and he was a wonderful uh, mentor in my career. And I remember him giving a lecture once to the criminal bar at the Old Bailey and he was saying, we're trying to run a Rolls-Royce system on a Ford price mm. and, and something's got to give. Well, mm. of course, now we're trying to run a Ford system, I would say, on a second-hand banger price and yeah. a lot more is having to give than was ever the case. How long ago was that? Well, he must have said this, I, I would guess it would be about 19... 85, 86. Gosh, so a long time ago, but still foresaw yes. that change. Maybe, maybe indeed earlier in the 80s. Yeah. And uh, you say it's had an impact on the judiciary and the, maybe the standards or the, the standards of work that's being uh, done, not necessarily the standard of, of, uh, of judges, but how is that filtering down through the system? Is the, is the British legal system, particularly the criminal justice system, still held in the esteem that it always has been or once was? Well, you know, reputations um, are often many years out of date. I'll give you an hmm. example of that. When I was at Cambridge so many years ago, and there was a particular college, well, in fact, it was the college I attended, Trinity hmm. Hall in Cambridge, hmm. and it was so well known as, the, as the, the star lawyer's college, you know, a Trinity Hall lawyer was like a Harvard lawyer sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and yet, the, the standard of tuition that I actually encountered there 
because the pe the people who had made the reputation were, had recently died and yep. they'd been replaced by younger people who were not impressive mm. in my particular year. Mm. Uh, but it probably took another 20 years before the reputation internationally and so forth. Uh, well, I'm afraid something of the same is happening. We used to say this is the finest legal system in the world, but oh my God, if this is the finest, I shudder for the for the second best because the kind of scandals we've had, the yeah. disclosure problems yes. that have led to the miscarriages of justice and the overturned convictions and the inadequate time for prosecution to prepare a case mm. properly and indeed for defence to do very often, you know, it's creaking, mm. it's, it's breaking down, it's very serious now. And, and it's coming to light. A lot of exposés, both uh, TV dramas, documentaries, uh, but also within the profession itself. Um, not necessarily whistleblowers as such, but they're happening as well. Um, the Secret Barrister, others who are yes. coming sort of on the record and, and, and writing their stories, uh, the, both of the family uh, in family practice as well as criminal. And people who've been the victims of these miscarriages yeah. of justice. There was that uh, young chap who was an aide to an MP recently mm who was acquitted after a, an appalling experience of a sexual offence he mm. didn't commit. Yes, I mean, articulate people are coming forward now and speaking out, and, and rightly so. And, and what's the impact being with the CPS? Is it still as solid as it once was and, or, or should be? The CPS is a damaged and, I would say, a seriously challenged organisation mm. today. One doesn't want to descend to personalities, but the fact is there is a general feeling mm. amongst politicians and certainly amongst lawyers that the present incumbent as Director of Public Prosecutions has been very, very disappointing in her role. Mm. People look back nostalgically to certain of her predecessors. But the fact is that it's become bureaucratic, um, hide-bound, uh, People, I think, are working nine to five and, mm. and, and, you know, taking the attitude that's all they're paying me for, so why yep. should I yep. work long hours? There's a bad morale there. One hears that continually. Mm. And the fact is that, that there have really been, as in the last, what, two years, I, I can't remember a time when there have been such high-profile failures by the CPS almost on a weekly basis as, as we've had mm. in the last couple of months, especially in, in sexual cases. Yeah. And um, what do you think is causing that? Because obviously there's been a digital revolution, um, which has brought about a whole new band of, uh, of well, legislation, uh, but also difficulties to deal with. But also at a time when I'm guessing funding is not what it has been or, or the investment in the justice system hasn't been what it was. Well, this is the problem, you know, to defend a case properly and indeed to prosecute a case properly, you need resources. Mm. In a big, important, difficult case especially, you need investigators, you need scientists, experts, mm. forensic mm. people. And all this costs money. Mm. Um, and what has happened in recent years is that mobile phones, uh, we each carry with us in our phone a computer that is really eavesdropping on every aspect of our lives, yeah. as we know. Interrogating the phones Mm. leads to such a massive information and sometimes there's, a, there's a, a fragment there that's crucial to guilt or innocence. Um, to take an obvious example, the recent miscarriage where the girl had been 
uh, the girl alleged rape, yes. but she had been sending texts to her friends saying what a wonderful time she'd had last night Absolutely. and so forth, yeah, yeah. and how she hoped to see the guy again. Now, this sort of thing, of course, it, it needs a massive interrogation of a phone and, yeah. and, and if you're cutting costs and the resources, I, I, I'm sorry for the police because I think so often they're overworked, underpaid and they haven't mm. got time mm. to investigate the amount of digital material that there is out there. Yeah. I'm sure there are occasions when they suppress it as well and of course that's highly improper but more often than not I suspect it's cock up and not conspiracy and they simply haven't got the time to do it properly. Mm. Uh, and appalling consequences can flow from that. Of course, years ago, not so many years ago, we just didn't have these phones, we didn't have the problem. <laughs> Cases were far simpler. Yeah. But now that we are in this age, unless you're going to, to allocate sufficient resources both to prosecuting and defending, you're going to get increasingly miscarriages of justice. No doubt about it. And by the way, both ways, the guilty will be acquitted yeah. just as the innocent will be convicted. Because miscarriages of justice, one must never forget, do go both, both ways. ways. And, and you've said before that um, you may well have been involved in some of those miscarriages, either well, probably not knowingly at the time, but subsequently. And how, how do you respond? How do you react to that? How do you look back on those things? Either evidence that comes to light afterwards, um, uh, confessions that are made after the event. Well, are you asking me the old, in, in more charming words, are you asking me the old question, how can I defend a man I know to be guilty? Well, I, I know that you wouldn't, and, and sometimes can't, but... Oh, no, I would, I would. The ethic is this, my private opinions are irrelevant, mm. I'm just a mouthpiece, and provided this man doesn't actually tell me yes. uh, that he's done it, I, I'll give you an amusing example. I remember going to defend a pig farmer whose wife had allegedly committed suicide after he discovered she'd been having an affair with the postman. Oh. She'd hanged herself. And the only problem was this: she, that my man had once been a merchant seaman. And I don't know if you've ever seen those um, cases of nautical knots in the pubs and so forth. Yes, you know? yeah. So she'd hanged herself with about nine perfect oh, different no. nautical knots which caused something of a suspicion, of course, in the local constabulary. <laughs> um, that added to him having discovered she was having this affair. But anyway. Maybe she'd been in the Girl Guides. Well, who knows? Who knows? So, I could have made a criminal defence barrister, yeah. There was other evidence as well, <laughs> believe me. So I went to see this guy uh, in prison. I shall never forget this. And by the way, this does not have happen often. What I'm going to tell you, if it's happened three times in my in my. 40-something year career, mm. that's a lot. So I, I asked him some perfectly innocuous first question, to which he said, the bitch, she had it coming, I'd do it again, oh. I hope, oh, the cow, she deserved it. And he, get, you know, he, he went on a complete whoopsie and confessed the lot, and, and the solicitor and I, we were just, and the junior barrister, we were all dumbfounded. Yeah. And I explained to him, well, now you've told me that, we can't defend you on a not guilty plea. You've yeah. got to admit it and we'll mitigate for you as best we can. I mm. mean, she was having an affair, there was provocation, whatever but we can't now defend you as you wanted on the full-blown defense that you weren't even there that day and know nothing about it so he said what i should plead guilty for that bitch that cow did what she did to never she said to hell i'll do it again and he again went off on this complete tirade 
So, of course, the system is that mm. we have to leave. Mm. We have to say to the judge, we're very sorry, but we're professionally embarrassed and yep. we can't tell him why because that's privilege. Of yep. course, he knows He knows because he's been in the game long enough to realise what we're telling him in code. And the farce is that he then gets a new QC and junior who equally know what the reason that Mr. Yep. Goldberg must have left. Yeah. You know, but we don't tell them and, and they carry on and we'll... In fact, he was convicted, not surprisingly, yeah. this particular guy. So the answer is, I don't know. And there's been other cases, the other side of the line completely, where if you'd said to me, what's my private opinion? Mm. And I'd have said to you, the case is overwhelming. I think he did it. I don't believe him. In fact, if you'd asked me at a private dinner party, uh, you know, if you'd been my wife or yeah. something, were asking me the question. Um, and, and yet, we've run those cases and something surprising has emerged and, and he wasn't. And the, and the jury, and yeah. I, had, I could give you examples that way. So. You know, thank God, it's not my job to decide, and I, and I don't know. I'm not I, I'm not the judge and jury. I'm the advocate. Mm, but you're not the judge and jury. But um, do you sometimes come back and think, well, that was a terrible decision from the jury? Is the jury system broken? Is that something that needs to be revised? Well, no. That the jury system is the jewel in the crown. I mean, God forbid we ever get rid of that, because. Um, all judges are case-hardened, inevitably. Yeah. It comes with the territory, just as I'm case-hardened. Yeah. You see, it may surprise you to know that when you're a defending lawyer, as I have mainly been, I've prosecuted a bit in my early years, but very little. Mm. I mean, people thought I was good at defending, and once you get stereotyped, yeah. that's, that's the kind of comes. work that follows you. Um, so not necessarily by choice, but I became a defending lawyer, and I, I've enjoyed it. Well. Uh, you might think I'd be, you know, oh, my client's innocent and I, and I can't see the... Quite the contrary. I'm mm. harder on mm. my own clients than you would imagine possible, mm. privately. Yeah. And equally, you know, so often the, the prosecutors who become judges are the fairest judges. Mm. And the defenders, like me, who become judges are often very unfair because we know, we know what goes on. Yeah. You know, it's poacher gamekeeper. I, I was for 25 years a recorder, which is a part-time crime court judge, as mm. you know. And I think I was a terrible judge. I mean, I'm glad I never <laughs> did it because I used to do both sides of the case. Yeah. You know, firstly, I would ask the questions, questions the prosecution were failing to ask, in my opinion, because yeah. they weren't up to it. And then I would be fair and ask the same questions for the defense. And so it was a bit like a Woody Allen film where he, <laughs> he's, he, he's the prosecutor, judge, jury, and witness alternately. Yeah. I was a bit like that. So I wasn't actually a very good judge. But the point I'm making is that, um, in, in fact, it, because you defend a lot, it doesn't make you blind to your clients and their faults. Yeah, and, and you're friends with a previous guest, uh, Dean Strang, who, yes. who, who lived through and, and, and worked on a very curious case where I was sat at home watching it thinking this would never happen in England. Making of a murderer. Absolutely. And, uh, and, and do you think it could happen? Has it happened? That sort of what seems like outrageous oh, miscarriage of justice. Oh, for sure. Oh, for sure. I mean, one of my own uh, sort of well-known cases, a murder, it was called the Torso Murders. I'm going back about 28 years, 30 years now. Dudley and Maynard, and they were both big-time gangsters, mm. real, you know, not quite the level of the craze, but sort of not too far behind. Mm. And uh, two rival gangsters were found murdered, and one of them had been having an affair with Dudley, the godfather's daughter, oh. and the other one had been crossing him and took some stolen property that belonged to Dudley and uh, so there was plenty of motive and they were convicted of these murders after a hard-fought trial 
Uh, and then I was only a young junior. I was a junior to a silk myself in those days. It was a wonderful 12, mm. went nine months at the Old Bailey. Gosh. They were convicted and 23 years later, no kid, they'd served all that time and they refused to confess. If they confessed, the parole board would have let them out yep. earlier, which is actually an iniquitous system that if you confess to a crime, mm. they'll let you out mm. earlier on parole. So it means that a person who genuinely is innocent and refused to confess, either he confesses anyway yep. as a sort of rice Christian, a pretend convert, and that happens a lot, and they let him out or we refuse and he stays inside, as was the case with Dudley and Maynard, they would never let it go. Uh, well, what do you know, the, the, a test was discovered, a new forensic test, 23 years later, and mm. the Criminal Cases Review Commission reported it back to the Court of Appeal, who quashed the conviction, the confessions were bogus confessions that the yep. police had invented, and this new test, we won't bother with the details, but it proved it, mm. uh, didn't exist at the time. So, of, for sure you have miscarriages of justice. Mm. Again, I assure you both ways. Well, and, and one of the more recent ones that you were involved with uh, was Marine A. Yes, and, great case. Uh, well, well, those people are maybe not familiar with it, or don't recall it, but can you talk us through it? Because, uh, incredible. Yes, yeah. as you see, I've got the... Uh, I can the, see a poster, poster all, yeah. on my wall, Justice for Marine A, because his very brave wife, again, wouldn't, just wouldn't let it go. Yeah and she made an awful lot of noise and, and eventually succeeded in getting the case reopened and a debate in Parliament. All right, well, in a nutshell, uh, Marine was a much decorated um, uh, sergeant major, staff sergeant major in the Marine Corps, very brave man. He'd mm. fought in every war that Britain had been in for the last many years. He was a man in his 40s. Mm. And uh, the reports on him were golden by all his superior officers. So he was in a hellhole in Afghanistan, a little fortress in the middle of nowhere, with about 12 younger Marines under his command. You might be surprised that only a sergeant would be in command yeah. of a little fortress, but he was. Uh, and for the Marines, that's not unusual because these kind of fellows are, you know, know what they're doing, these very experienced sergeants. And um, they were miles away from anywhere. They were being shot at virtually every day and having grenades lobbed over the wall of their little fortress, which didn't mm. even have a roof, so you could lob, a, lob yep. a grenade over and you just have to huddle against the wall and hope it didn't get you. And the rules of engagement were absolutely potty. Mm. They were that um, if a Taliban shot at you and was then running away, you couldn't shoot him in the back because uh, he was no longer yep. a threat. So he could throw a grenade. He was doing a lot of work. You'd have to, you know, you'd have to wave him goodbye and be back tomorrow to do it again. Yeah. Those were the rules of engagement, incredibly enough. Anyway, on this particular day, uh, the alert came over the radio that the, a couple of Taliban had been spotted. An Apache helicopter was sent out to shoot at them. They were armed, of course, and that could be seen over the electronic gadgets they all yeah. had for surveillance. And the Apache got this chap and he was all shot up. And according to the pathologist uh, whom I instructed for the appeal, he didn't have 10 minutes of life left in, in, in him anyway. Mm -hmm. He was that badly wounded. According to the photographs, there's no doubt about this. So cut a long story short, Marine um, and his patrol come to just see if he's dead or not and, and basically do what they call a battle damage assessment. Mm. And he's groaning and moaning and just about alive, totally uh, you know, prone on the ground, but, yep. but just about alive. 
Um, so the choice facing Marina is now either to call in a medical evacuation helicopter, which would be very dangerous because he's equally hearing over the radio, not only the one other Taliban that had been seen, but others according to intercepted communications are in the area. Mm. And they had rocket propelled grenades, they could shoot a helicopter down. Mm. So th th that's the dilemma facing him, even though the rules said that an enemy prisoner should be treated with the same care that you treat a wounded yeah, marine. Right, so again, according to the rules, he should have brought in a helicopter that would no doubt take him back for excellent treatment, perhaps take him back to Harley Street to be uh, mended on PBP or Booper, and then send him back to Afghanistan to do it again. But yeah. those, I'm being cynical, but those yeah. really were the rules, incredibly enough. So uh, what he in fact did was um, he, he got his gun out, as you know, and, and shot the guy once in the mm. chest and said, it's more than you would, rather juicier words, but it's more than you would have done for us, mm. which of course it was. Now, uh, there was no psychiatric report obtained on him at the time of trial. By the time we came to appeal, we'd obtained three superb psychiatric reports and mm. the prosecution guy agreed with the defense guys. And in essence, they were saying he'd been out there six months in this hell hole, yeah. he'd been shot at, he'd had grenades thrown at him, his judgment was not what it would have been ordinarily. Mm. And he was therefore able to claim diminished responsibility, which brought the case down from murder to manslaughter, mm. and the time he'd served was effectively the same as the sentence he now was given. Mm. Um, case wasn't handled well at trial, but we won't go into that. Well, well, uh, how do you come about a case like that? Because I know you're taking fewer cases on. Do you, do you choose them or do they choose you? Well, of course, I wasn't at the trial. Um, it came to me on appeal in a rather interesting way. An, an old friend of mine is Freddie Forsyth, Frederick Forsyth, mm. the famous author, who's a great patriot, and Freddie... Uh, He's, you know, great friend of the armed forces. Yep. He was a fighter pilot himself yep. uh, in the RAF some years ago. So Freddie rang me. For many years past, he would ring me if, if there's a legal aspect to one of his novels and he'd just ask for <laughs> a bit of research sort of thing. I hope you get me. some credits. Uh, in well, the, I, I usually get a lovely bottle of wine. Oh, that's, so that's, okay. better that's, that's better than the credit. He's a great guy. <laughs> And um, do you know how I first met Freddie? This is an amazing story. I defended a terrible fraudsman, a man called Roger Levitt. And he, he deserved 10 years and I got him off with community service. He'd done enormous frauds. And Freddie lost five million pounds to this guy. Wow. But he was nonetheless full of praise for the way I did the trial. And he said, I know you were only doing your job and I blame the incompetent way the CPS prosecuted it. Yeah. And he could see through this, being the intelligent guy he is. That's how we became friends, mm. extraordinarily enough. Yeah. Anyway, he said to me, I've been following this case of Marine A. He said, I've bought the transcript. I've read it from first to last and it's an appalling miscarriage of justice. Mm. And I said, Freddie, that's what you always think. He has a tendency <laughs> that way. He said, please read it and you'll see. Well, I read it and my eyes popped out on stalks. Mm. And I said, oh my God, you are right. And I have to say, he paid me a proper fee to read it. So he's putting his hand in his own pocket. Yeah. And the only reason was that Marine's wife, Mrs. Blackman, um, had, had been in touch with him and, wow. and, and tried to persuade him that this was a miscarriage of justice. And one thing led to another. He, he has a fantastic address book. He knows everybody. Mm. And 
he organized MPs who took up the case and journalists who took up the, the case. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the Daily Mail took up the yeah. case as a sort of crusade and they funded the whole appeal. Wow. And we were able to do it on a, you know, pop. When I said to you, you need resources yeah. to do yeah. a case properly. So we were able to get the psychiatrists in and the pathologists in and all these other people who hadn't been used as they should have been at trial. And we were able to turn the case around on appeal. Yeah, and incredibly fortunate because not everybody has that sort of resource or, or, or address book uh, to hand. Totally. Uh, and, uh, and again, this is, you know, there was a great Victorian judge called Mr. Justice Matthew, and he was a very witty guy. And his saying, which I find myself repeating again and again, he, he said, that the English law is like the Ritz Hotel, open to all. Yeah. Yeah. And isn't yeah. that the truth? Like it the is. The Ritz Hotel, open to all. And it, but it comes at a cost. Uh, <laughs> so uh, you can add that bit to it for free. So does um, Ritz Hotel. <laughs> it does. Um, I want to talk to you. So that was a case that you took on um, well, effectively through direct access. Oh, I do a lot of direct access. How, how do you find that? Wonderful. Um, oh, my God. If only they had direct access you know, when I started my career at the bar, I'd be a wealthy man today and I'd have had a lot more excellent cases even than I've had, I can mm. assure you. Uh, because in my day, you know, we were beholden and dependent on solicitors. We mm. were scared of them as young barristers particularly. Mm. And indeed, until we became silk, you didn't dare say boo to a solicitor. And if you did, the clerk of chambers would be on you like a yeah. ton of bricks because he was beholden to them. Yeah. And that was the system. And, and it, it, we so often had to hide the incompetence of solicitors and pretend it wasn't <laughs> happening and make excuses to judges. And we did this absolutely regularly, you mm -hmm. know. Um, so they had the whip hand. And of course, in any given case, they would say, oh, you want let's say Mr. George Carman, who was the famous mm. silk when I was a younger man. Mm. Oh, you want Mr. Carman? Well, you know, he's going to be X thousands of pounds. And what would really happen is they would take 60% of X yeah. and the barrister would, would be lucky to get the 40% and often yeah. less. And the client would never even, you know, realize very often what was going on. So uh, there were a lot of abuses. And so many cases do not need the double manning of a solicitor. Yes. They simply don't. And the beauty, particularly appeals, um, very often simple trials. I mean, I've mm. done many a simple trial on direct access. And if there's letters to be written, I do it myself. I enjoy yeah. it. Why not? Or I bring in a good junior. I've got my own little stable of excellent juniors. Often they were my pupils years ago. Mm. And um, we can do it just as well as any solicitor. In a case that needs a solicitor, we bring one in. Again, yeah. I've got my little stable of really good solicitors. Yeah, little address so I'm able to, in my address box, yeah. so, so, you know, if, if I haven't at my stage of my career, it's pretty pathetic. But, <laughs> so I do have. And I'm able to say to a client, well, you know, this is going to cost you, but mm. if you want a Rolls Royce service, but that's what they get. And, and how is North Square Chambers going? Because Wonderful. You, you, it's been a while now, hasn't it? I, I, well, I tell you, in 2010, I was in an established set of chambers and the overhead was now going up to 24% mm. of everything. So every £100 I made, 24% I had to pay to chambers. Yeah. Now, I was getting nothing for it. Mm. Um, 
I didn't need the expensive parties to take solicitors on boat trips on the River Thames yeah. with the champagne flowing because I had my own reputation. Yeah. If somebody was bringing me a case, it was coming to me anyway. And I felt that these expensive offices were unnecessary. Mm. Barristers don't need expensive offices because, um, you know... Well, increasingly less so. Everything no, is mobile. More so. If you, if you look what's going on in, in, in barristers' chambers, they're spending a fortune. Mm. And that's why the overheads are so high, because they feel they have to compete. Well, I'm, I'm against all that. Mm. A barrister should be the ultimate niche profession. Mm. You know, the, the sharp end of the knife should be the barrister, particularly a QC. And, and all this other stuff is a distraction. Anyway, so my wife, and I, I got married to my, to my second wife, we're both, uh, she's a very successful lawyer in New York, as it happens, and we have a sort of transit. I want to say, how does that work? Oh, wonderful. <laughs> I say, living with a lawyer must be awful, well, but, um, but you both, she's in America. We live with her, we have a transatlantic <laughs> marriage, you know, I go there, she comes here, and, and we meet at our place in Florida. Oh, fantastic. Uh, sometimes as well. And it truly is a holiday. And, and, and she, she said to me, you're crazy. What, you know, Americans see things in, empirically and don't have the pomposity. They look at the common sense of it. Yeah. She said, are you crazy? 24%? Mm. What for? Mm. You, know, you can do it at home with your own little clerk. And that's what I did. And oh my God, I wish I'd listened to her so many... Well, I, I didn't know her then but before, but the fact is it was wonderful advice. But, and I've been terribly busy, far more, sometimes more busy than I want to be, actually. But do you sometimes feel that that's depriving sort of the, the up-and-coming barristers from that experience that you had of working with senior uh, barristers, silks, um, to sort of distill uh, and empower through, through that sort of collegiate well, atmosphere? do you know, one of the things when I meet my maker, I will be able to say, and there will be a lot of witnesses still alive if he wants to check with them, <laughs> Or she. Um, he or she. <laughs> I'm very lucky because I have a, a stable of today brilliant and established junior barristers. Yep. Some of them indeed young silks, but obviously don't need them anymore, but there mm. are a number. And I, they look to me as their mentor, as I look to great figures in my younger days, Michael yep. Sherrard, Ash Lincoln, uh, Jeffrey Lane, I said to you, mm. the people who, who, who I was lucky enough to be mentored by. And... My pupils today, I bring them in as my juniors, and they're, they're you know, really clever, excellent boys, mm. and they will bring in their young pupils. Okay. So when I go to court, that is a bit like a matador and his <laughs> quadrille of toreadors and picadors. You know, there's a load of people behind me. So I feel that, that, that I am... In that sense, the family tree is continuing. And I do yes. take that very seriously. The responsibility Good. to try and educate young mm. people is a very real one. And, I get a good write-up, I'm pleased to say, from my pupils, and I'm very proud of it. Well, we've, we've spoken a little bit about some of your uh, clients, but I can't go without talking to you about perhaps one of the more famous ones, um, Charlie Cray. Well, of course, he's on the wall, too. I can you see can him see on the wall um, uh, in several places. Yes, uh, uh, cartoons of his craft. Again, is this, is this something that comes to you, or do you go to, the, to it? Well, in those days, I was, of course, a barrister in established mm. chambers. I, I was a QC. I was a young QC, wasn't I, in those days? Uh, I'm trying to remember when Charlie's case was, but it, it was... Oh, gosh. It must have been in the early 90s. Yes. Early 90s. 97-ish. Okay. Or maybe the mid-90s, yeah. Right, and I was made a silk in 1989, so I wasn't so young, yeah. but I was relatively young. Yeah. And... Uh, 
there was a, a solicitor, he, he's unfortunately dead now, he was a terrible rogue, I won't name him, but he had wonderful East End clients, a very lovable rogue, yes. let me say, had wonderful East End clients. And he rang me and he said, I'd like you to defend Charlie Cray. And of course, I was cock-a-hoop. Because, mm. and, and poor Charlie, he was the, um, the charming face of the Cray brothers. The other two were by now in prison for murder. Right. And Charlie had got 10 years for disposing of the body. Um, and he'd been released and he was now a, really a washed up old man. And he'd sort of had a last fling. He tried to arrange a cocaine deal. And he'd been set up by undercover officers okay. who were pretending to be drug dealers. It was a really a dirty business because it was agent provocateur, mm. and we ran that unsuccessfully. Uh, but he, 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 the only defence when you're caught on tape is, of course, as he did, to say, "Oh, it was all a joke. I was only joking, officer." But the only problem was that at the end of this joke, three kilos of cocaine turned up in his car boot. So. It was not an easy case to defend. That said, it was a wonderfully dramatic case. It went mm. for m many, many weeks, and we called all sorts of wonderful characters, mm. including, as is well known, Mad Frankie Fraser, now dead as well. But he came to say what a lovely gentleman Charlie was, and he would never be involved with drugs, and it was nothing to do with his brother's violence. Mm. And he knew because he'd been the rival gang. Um, and we called a million people who said under the East, the East, you know, what a lovely guy Charlie was. And in his day, in the East End, it was safe to walk the streets. Yeah. And there were no robberies, rapes and murders because the family <laughs> kept everyone else in order. So it was a real slice of social history, you yeah. say. But Charlie himself was a wonderful, lovely client. You know, the solicitor had his daughter on the case as the youngest list. She was recently qualified. Lovely mm. girl. And we would go down to the cell every lunchtime, and I'll never forget, you'd want to have, you know, you'd only get an hour, half hour after they had the lunch to be able to talk to them about the case and take instructions. Well, if you had half an hour, believe me, for 31 of the 30 minutes, Charlie was complimenting this pretty girl on her hair and her clothes and pulling the chair out for her. And he was the most charming girl. Mm. He, he, and he telling stories and anecdotes. He was a, you know, a very lovable old rogue, is all I can say. And he, and he was, as everybody has said about him, he, he was a perfect gentleman. I remember when he went down and got a sentence that for him was a life sentence yeah. because he died in prison. He was 70 by that time. He was at uh, the time of conviction. But I remember the thanks, because he realized we'd done our very best. And the thanks and the, you know, you, I've never really had as nice a client as Charlie Cray. Mm. So I, I have nice memories of him. Well, this blurring between fact and fiction uh, seems to continue, and, and everything that you've talked about sounds like it could be an episode from probably Midsummer Murder, more so than Murder, She Wrote. But, um, but thank you uh, for your time. I could listen to these stories uh, for a long time to come. And thank you for the excellent Yorkshire tea. My uh, pleasure. It's much appreciated. And uh, I look forward to uh, maybe hearing some more stories another time. Well, there's a lot of life in me yet, and I'm... Well, I'm sure there's a few books in you as well, so get, have, get some, uh, some of tips course, off Freddie. Uh, I'm working now on the Hillsborough case. I've got the solicitor who, who's accused of perverting justice in Hillsborough, and that's going to be a big assignment. Yeah. And so uh, as long as they're silly enough to want me, I'm happy to take the case. Well, that's as good an advert as I've ever heard, so thank you. The Hearing. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast. Uh, please like us or just follow and subscribe. We also want your feedback, so rate and review us or just get in touch using the hashtag TheHearingPodcast. 
The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.